Hello and welcome to Fintech Bytes, a podcast series from CMS, in which we will discuss and provide insight into some of the latest technology and regulatory developments, market trends and issues affecting fintech and innovation in financial services. Hello and welcome to this episode of the CMS Fintech Bytes podcast series. My name is Yasmin Johal and I'm a lawyer in the regulatory team at CMS London and a member of the CMS Fintech Practice Group. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Dilveer Kang, who is also a member of the regulatory team at CMS London um, and a member of the FinTech Practice Group, and Erica Federes, who is a member of the CMS Banking Team and a member of the FinTech Practice Group. Prior to joining CMS, Erica worked in-house at a crypto digital payments firm, so is very well versed in all things crypto. So today, we will be exploring decentralized finance, otherwise known as DeFi. We'll be looking at various things in relation to what is DeFi, why is it important, what is happening in this space, and what can we expect in the next 12 months. So Erica, really excited for you to be joining us today. So let's kick off. What is DeFi? Um, so DeFi is effectively an alternative to the traditional financial sector and looks to create a more open and transparent system via peer-to-peer transactions. So financial products and services software are built on top of a public blockchain, which technically anyone can have a look at. So these types of software are usually built on top of smart contract enabled blockchains, um, and the most widely used being the Ethereum blockchain. One of the main aims of DeFi is to cut out the usual financial intermediaries in order to foster the potential to facilitate faster and cheaper financial transactions with little to no bureaucratic processes for transparency and auditability as well. Great, thanks, that's a really good introduction. So why is it important? Uh, Big institutions like banks and clearinghouses uh, traditionally make up the network of financial entities that perform essential economic functions like lending money and moving money around and things like that. One of the biggest problems with traditional institutions like these is that they usually charge significant fees for the use of their service and transactions tend to take quite a lot of time to process. Uh, those fees can get a little bit expensive. So for instance, if you use your card in a shop to pay for something, you might think that the payments process goes directly from A to B, um, so from your bank to the merchant's bank. But there are actually usually entities in the middle, like acquirers and interchanges, which take their cut of the fee pie. From a lending perspective, although debts can sometimes be seen as less expensive than other forms of funding, uh, interest rates can some Uh, still sometimes be quite costly. In terms of transaction times, they can usually take somewhere between days, weeks, or even months to process. So for instance, if I want to transfer money abroad and international money transfer using any of the well-known remittance companies, this might take between one to five business days to process. From a corporate lending perspective, it takes a few weeks to wrap up the process of borrowing and lending money right from negotiating terms, finalizing the finance documents through to the borrower's money landing in the borrower's account. So what DeFi aims to do is reduce transaction fees as well as transaction times and financial services. So there are no intermediaries which take a cut of the fees in the middle. 
the peer-to-peer -peer nature of the technology means that a transaction goes from A to B, which significantly reduces the amount that needs to be paid in any given transaction. For example, in a payment scenario, a blockchain-based digital payment network might allow for instantaneous international transfers and settlement by facilitating rapid conversion between different types of currencies within that network. In a lending scenario, uh, participants who avail DeFi lending products can choose from a broad range of services, which again allow for near instantaneous transaction settlements. Um, for example, if a person wants to borrow crypto and puts up the requisite collateral, they can usually obtain the funds fairly quickly once that exchange takes place. All they would typically need is a wallet and perhaps an email address and they can easily take advantage of these products and there's no ID, no identification required. Um, that's also an advantage by way of providing an opportunity for financial inclusion for those who we might call unbanked. Um, whilst it's common for us here in the West um, to have bank accounts, it's not necessarily the case for those who live in developing countries. So sometimes banks will find it difficult to give out loans to those without much means, as this poses a financial risk to them because they might not get paid. Um, DeFi loans therefore provide an opportunity for the unbanked to avail lending services that they would otherwise not have been able to access. There's also an increasing amount of concern um, over interest rates provided by traditional financial institutions. Fiat savings accounts tend to have quite low interest rate returns um, in comparison to crypto savings products and services like staking. For example, if you stake a particular token on a typical exchange, um, it is possible to obtain something like a 40% annual return um, in comparison with an average roughly around 0.4% you can get on a typical fiat savings account. Ah, thank you very much, Erica. Well, you, you've spoken about some lending products. I was wondering, just in general, what do you think of the uh, top five products, DeFi products that people should be looking out for? Sure. So I would probably say um, the things to look out for are uh, wallets, uh, borrowing and lending products, um, liquidity mining, decentralized exchanges and automated market makers and stable coins as well. Um, so in terms of wallets, um, yeah, these are the backbone, uh, backbone of DeFi and anything crypto related, really, in fact. Um, without a wallet, it's really hard to participate in the DeFi market. Um, because they store the keys necessary to access any crypto assets and digitally sign transactions. So there are cold wallets and hot wallets. Cold wallets are the ones that store private keys offline, um, either in hardware or software wallets, and hot wallets are cloud solutions. Um, these solutions make it a lot more accessible um, for people to access crypto services, no matter where they are in the world. But the issue with hot wallets is that they may be more susceptible to risks of hacking events, particularly because they tend to be held centrally by a service provider. So it's pros and cons for both um, types of wallets, really. Um, in terms of borrowing and lending, automated loans allow anonymous parties to transact directly with one another. And because there are no intermediaries in this case, all parties can get by without the usual bureaucratic processes in between. At the core of it all, parties to a transaction are connected via smart contracts and nothing else. And there's no identifiable information involved. Um, lenders in this case tend to deposit their crypto assets for the purposes of lending them out. Uh, once that's locked into a smart contract, their crypto is automatically provided as loans to anyone who wants to borrow crypto using that particular protocol. 
as with traditional banking or even non-blockchain based uh, P2P lending, the lender receives interest every time their crypto assets are lent out. And the borrower is committed to pay back the borrower's crypto plus any interest owed to that borrower. When it comes to borrowing crypto, uh, lending protocols usually require borrowers to put up a significant amount of collateral. This is around about 130% of the value borrowed. If the value of the crypto that the borrower puts up as collateral falls below the value of the crypto borrowed, the smart contract automatically executes and automatically sells that collateral. Given that the parties are mostly anonymous, uh, over-collateralization is done for the purposes of protecting the lender's interest, uh, particularly since there wouldn't be any financial due diligence carried out on a borrower, like you would usually see in a traditional fiat lending or borrowing scenario. So there are also some protocols which hold back a, a separate collateral pool to pay the lenders if collateral liquidation doesn't cover the value of the defaulted loan. So that, that's kind of the more traditional crypto borrowing and lending type product. But there are also other uh, crypto loan products that have their own nuances, like, for instance, flash loans. Um, with flash loans, you don't put up any collateral, but the assets that are borrowed usually have to be repaid within the same transaction on the blockchain. So there's no risk of repayment, uh, non-repayment here, because if the loan isn't repaid within the same transaction, the whole transaction bounces back and will become void. This is more complicated than the borrowing lending product that I mentioned just now, um, but this one is primarily used to take advantage of any arbitrage between different exchanges. So you wouldn't usually see um, retail, retail borrowers um, availing flash loans. Um, another type of um, crypto loan product is yield farming, where participants tend to move crypto assets between a broad range of borrowing and lending protocols to find the best returns or yield. Uh, so another uh, type of product that um, people should be looking at uh, is liquidity mining. Um, so with liquidity mining, in order to keep the DeFi uh, borrowing lending market ticking smoothly, there needs to be people willing to put up their crypto assets for others to borrow. To, to incentivize people to do this, the lenders receive rewards and tokens from another project. In fact, borrowers receive similar treatment that the lenders do really, because I suppose without borrowers, there wouldn't be any need for lenders. Um, effectively, all DeFi applications like these entice users to their platform by giving them free tokens. So it's a kind of yield farming where users use DeFi products to earn an additional token on top of the regularly expected yield that they would already have just by putting up their crypto assets into a liquidity pool, which sometimes they don't even really use anyway. So I guess they might, might as well put it into, into that pool. Um, the tokens that are received may increase in value, which means more profit for participants in the ecosystem. Um, so another type of product uh, is decentralized exchanges and automated market makers. Uh, Decentralized exchanges allow the exchange of one type of crypto asset for another uh, directly from an owner's wallet without the need for a central exchange, which means that there is also no need for any third party to hold any assets in custody. The smart contract in this case acts as the counterparty and sets the rates of exchange instead of the third party intermediary. So in a similar fashion to lending products, uh, decentralized exchanges also need to be able to ensure that all trading pairs have a sufficient amount of reserve available to successfully carry out any exchange. So the smart contracts need to have a liquidity pool available. 
So again, here users deposit crypto assets into the pool and in return, they receive transaction fee for each, each exchange and a liquidity pool token. And that, that liquidity pool token represents a share of the pool, which gives the owner a right to redeem the corresponding amount they own from that liquidity pool. Um, in terms of automated market makers, they're a type of protocol that values crypto asset prices via mathematical formulas and algorithms. Since there is no third party determining prices, um, automated ma market makers reduce any threat of price manipulation or centralized hacking attacks. And one more product that I wanted to mention was stable coins. Um, so while crypto assets are notoriously known for their volatility, um, stable coins aim to address the issue by pegging its value to a fiat currency, for instance, USD or GBP, um, or another crypto asset or even a commodity like gold. Um, there are also algorithmic-backed stablecoins, which tend to keep volatility at bay via supply and demand within the ecosystem. At the simplest level, if a stablecoin valued at one pound trades above that price, then the system automatically creates new stablecoins until the price falls back down to one pound. Uh, very interesting. And on stablecoins, it's going to be in really interesting to see how they're yeah. going to be regulated over the course of the next year. Definitely. As we see the FCA really going going to town on it. But for yourself, what have you been seeing from a legal perspective in the DeFi space? Um, so here at CMS, we do have a broad range of DeFi clients um, and we do work with them on a full range of questions from regulatory obligations to operation of smart contracts, as well as IP and supporting any disputes that might arise for them. So we apply existing regulation and laws to innovate business models like those in the DeFi industry. Um, for instance, with automatic execution via smart contracts, this is really revolutionary, but whilst that might be the case, it's not void of bad actors or mistakes in the ecosystem. So for example, a developer may not have good intentions when writing a particular smart contract code or an unforeseen bug may cause significant issues on the blockchain, causing a smart contract to accidentally malfunction. From a legal standpoint, commercial agreements are not always necessarily black and white. So these are sometimes matters which are open to negotiation and interpretation, which may not necessarily fit within the if X, then Y model that smart contracts tend to work on. In any event, before smart contracts can be enforceable, and particularly in the UK, parties first need to clearly set out their intentions when they're entering into an agreement and their intentions for that agreement to be legally enforceable. Additionally, the question of recourse when something goes wrong comes into play. If a smart contract executes on the premise of if X, then Y, but doesn't take into account an instance where scenario Z happens, uh, for instance, the scenario envisaged by parties to a contract, um, that question will need to be raised from a legal point of view in order to determine, firstly, who's liable for the fault, and secondly, what's the best avenue for recourse. Great, Erica, that's really interesting, and it seems to be loads of um, kind of work in this space right now. So let's look forward. What do you think is happening in the DeFi space over the next 12 months? Um, so I think it's a little bit hard to say because a lot of um, the people that we come across um, in the DeFi space tend to kind of feel that DeFi is supposed to work outside of regulatory parameters and legislation. Um, but 
I don't think this is necessar necessarily the case. And I feel like Yasmin and Dill, you guys might have a bit more of an <laughs> input um, as you guys are the regulatory experts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, over the next 12 months, we're going to see quite a lot of change in the crypto asset space, all of which will end up affecting DeFi in some way, shape or form. I think the main one that people really need to be aware of is changes to the financial promotions rules. So we had a treasury consultation paper earlier this year, which expressed that there are certain kinds of crypto assets which will fall within the regulatory perimeter if you are uh, creating a financial promotion. Now, financial promotions are fairly broad and cover most advertising and marketing. So it means that when websites are marketing, and this, this covers any kind of inducement to carry on certain activities, such as exchanging crypto assets for money, then those businesses are going to fall within the regulatory perimeter. And this will include those companies which run DeFi exchanges. So I think all, all crypto players really need to be aware of those changes and be aware of how this is going to change their business model. Now, the Treasury have said that uh, once they receive responses to their consultation paper, which is now closed, that they'll give a decent runway for people to be able to change their business model to take the new uh, to take the new financial promotions regime into account. But again, we don't know how long this is going to be, and there's still a fairly big question mark over all of this. Next, we've also got stable tokens, as Erica was talking about earlier. Now, um, HM Treasury have also consulted on regulating stable tokens, and there will be some kind of FCA authorization regime for stable tokens. Now, how this regime will operate is still fairly unclear, but we do know it will be closer to a light touch regime similar to those for payment services and e-money rather than a more full authorization which you typically see with investment firms however there'll also be a lot of additional rules for certain kinds of payment providers and this might include big issuers and it does invite quite a lot of questions like for instance uh would the issuer of a major stable token like usdt fall under additional authorization requirements so it's just barely unclear at the moment and we're just waiting for uh treasury the FCA and the PRA to just provide some more information on this. And in general, this is a fairly rapidly changing space. So it's it's the kind of space that if you are working in crypto, whether in DeFi or otherwise, you really need to keep an eye on the regulatory environment and changes to the laws. Yeah, I mean, I think you've covered it all. I don't really have anything else to add, really. As you said, it is a rapidly changing environment. Um, and clients really need to reach out if they're operating this space to see whether a they are within the regulated perimeter currently or b whether you know the potential changes may impact them and if so whether they can start any contingency planning now thank you everybody for listening we hope you enjoyed our interview with erica from our finance team if you want any further details on the topic or on any of the points we've discussed today in the podcast then you can contact either erica yasmin or me and our contact details are linked below and available on our fintech bytes webpage we also frequently publish thought leadership in this area and you can also check out our general fintech webpage twitter page which is also linked below thanks everybody for listening and take care